the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing John Linder, ex-RAAF Flight Lieutenant. John joined the RAAF as a trainee pilot in 1961. Following graduation, he was posted to 38 Squadron on DC-3 Dakotas. In 1964, John participated in the first ferry of the new Caribou aircraft from Canada to Australia. He then joined the second Caribou ferry later in 1964, but this aircraft was delivered to Vung Tau via Greenland, Iceland and Europe. John then joined the RAAF Transport Flight Vietnam in Vung Tau, mid-October 1964, among the pilots of the first group. His tour in Vietnam provided plenty of adventures and on-the-edge flying. He finished this tour in June of 1965. John then did a third Caribou ferry in August of 1965. This time, he flew across the Pacific. John says, between Honolulu and Canton Island, we had to shut down an engine due to loss of oil from the propeller and then proceeded for seven hours on one engine to Canton Island. Very stressful. In September 1966, John began flying the C-130E Hercules at 37 Squadron Richmond. Beginning October 1966, he then participated in two ferry flights of C-130s from Atlanta to Richmond. He then flew the C-130E until he left the RAAF in late July of 1969. John then began a life of civilian flying, twin otters in the Arctic for interior airways of Fairbanks, Alaska, Qantas 707s, but left after a big layoff of pilots in late 1971. Beach Queen Airs for Masling out of Cootamundra and a Cessna Golden Eagle based in Cardiff, Wales for a wealthy Welshman. In August of 1973, Qantas began taking furloughed pilots back and he moved on to DC-4s. In May of... 1974, John moved to Auckland and joined Air New Zealand. He was with them nearly 20 years on the DC-8, then the DC-10 and then the 747. He gained a command in 1986 and flew them as captain on the 747 until leaving Air New Zealand in late 1993. John spent the next 10 years flying the 747 for various small operators around the world and retired from big aeroplanes in mid-2003. A life full of variety and challenges. Well, John, it's great to have your company. Thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure, Gareth. Why did you join in 1961 the Air Force? Why was it the Air Force that you wanted to join? I grew up in a little country town, a little village northwest of Albury, and uh, I really was only ever interested in in aeroplanes, being a pilot. But I grew up in a, a very lower middle class family where neither of my parents ever went to high school. 
and uh, he was their only son wanting to be a pilot, which was something they couldn't grasp. So I wound up, when I left Albury High School, I became a cadet municipal engineer here in Albury at the Hume Shire Council, which is a council area north from Albury, but their headquarters in those days was in Albury. But all I wanted to do was fly aeroplanes. And one day um, I was having lunch and there was an ad in the local paper for Air Force pilots, navigators and signalers. So I rode off to the Air Force and uh, this is about probably May 1960. And I presume I told my parents, although I don't remember, but anyway, they wanted me down in Melbourne. So I went to Melbourne for interviews for two or three days, psych tests and all those sort of things. And I failed. I came back with my tail between my legs and uh, I went back to working at the Hume Shire Council. But again, by about August, September, October, maybe, I must have seen another ad because I applied a second time and I went down for another lot of interviews. And I must there must have been at least one on the interview board who recognised me from last time because he said, yeah, I remember you, um, but you've matured since then. Uh, I also knew a bit about aeroplanes and I knew the difference between a centrifugal jet engine and a and an axial flow one and I knew that to starboard green and port red and so on. So I, this time I got in. What kinds of questions did they ask in the interview? Well, that, that was one, that type of thing. What do I know about aeroplanes, engines? What's, a di- what's the difference between an axial flow and a centrifugal jet engine? Well, they're the only two I remember. <laughs> Where's the starboard? Is the starboard green or red? So it's starboard green, port red. And those types of questions, but I obviously knew enough to have them accept me and I got in. I joined in 41 course in January 61. So the the first interview that you failed, uh, as you reflect back, would it because he thought you were not mature enough? I'm sure that was part of it. Um, And I was a very quiet country boy, bookish from Brocklesby. I mean, that's not a very, not a, not a, not a likely candidate for the Air Force. But I had I shot hundreds of rabbits and I'd shot foxes and I'd I'd shot wild pigs and a crocodile or two, and uh, I could drive a truck. So I, I had a bit of background. I could ride a horse. I had a bit of background in that respect. And in World War One, they took pilots often from the cavalry because the, the belief was that if you could ride a horse, you could probably fly an aeroplane back then. I wonder if it's still the same. Yeah, I, I don't think flying an F-35A is the equivalent to, to riding a horse, but however, uh, it's a good analogy. So you have, to remember, you have to remember that all pilots start on something like a wind jill. The F-35 or the 747 is way, way down the road. So what was that those early days like? You've joined, you've been accepted, you've now got a uniform. What were the early days like? It was quite a, a step forward. I'd never been in the Boy Scouts, I'd never marched, and I, here I was thrown into this this group of worldly young fellows from the city, people like Don Pollock, whom I know you've met, others like him, uh, who were somewhat older than I was, and uh, it was quite an eye-opener. I'd, I'd had a religious background. i taught Sunday school when I was at Brocklesby. So I was exposed to this big new world in Melbourne where we went out on Saturday evening, or these guys went out on Saturday evening looking to have a beer and find a girl to make love to. And this was quite an eye-opener for me. <laughs> we won't dwell on that. What? How long before you were actually posted to 38 Squadron and then got onto the uh, Dakotas? So the average course was about 15 or 16 or 17 months in those days. So we started in January 61, uh, did the Wingeal phase, which was hard going. And then at the end of that year, about um, October, we moved to Pierce in Western Australia, north of Perth, and started on the Vampire Jet. And from my point of view, that's when I really started to enjoy flying. The Vampire was magnificent. I had a wonderful instructor named Tex Watson. He was a big, burly fellow, 
superficially noisy, but one of these noisy people who have a soft heart. And he and I got on like a house on fire. And I loved the vampire. And that's when I really started to enjoy flying. So we graduated about April or May 62 and went to some of us, Don Pollock and I and Gary Martin, went to DC-3s at 38 Squadron. That must have been a a mental gap. I I like flying the vampire. Now I'm on a Dakota. How did you feel about that? I'm a bit of a frustrated fighter pilot, but I I knew that I wasn't likely to stay in the Air Force. I wasn't Air Force material. I like flying aeroplanes, not sitting, doing paperwork and sure. running a squadron. That wasn't going to be my scene, and I knew that even then. So the DC-3 was a challenge. It was a dreadful old aeroplane, really, but people get misty-eyed about it. But I had the good fortune to go from the DC-3 to the Caribou, and that's like going from a, a 1936 Chev to a sprightly MGB or something. Yeah. You know, the, the difference <laughs> is like night and day. So when you are with the Dakotas, did you uh, was any of your flying experience with that plane where you had to actually have paratroopers jump from the plane and drop transport, drop items from the plane, or was it just pl- flying in those early stages? To begin with, it was really a training ground for multi-engine pilots because up till then, of course, we'd never flown multi-engine. So the first 12 months or so, we people like Don Pollock and I and Gary Martin, we did things like two trips around Australia as a training flight from one place to another, stop mm. the night. Again, it was great fun. While fighter pilots like Peter, they were squirting up to 40,000 feet and then coming back and doing that once a week or so, Peter, I reckon. So in that sense, it was good. But later on, we started dropping paratroopers from the parachute school in Williamtown. And uh, one day, Don Pollock and I, we'd finished dropping our parachutists and we had one oxy mask between the two of us. So we said, let's go up to 20,000 feet. So Don was flying and I was in the right-hand seat. We went up to 20,000 feet. So I'd have a breathe of the oxygen. And when he was getting a bit blue around the lips, I'd put it on his face and oh. he'd have some more. So we got up to 20,000 feet. He, he reckons now we made it to higher than 20,000. But I think Don's stories grow with the telling. I'm pretty sure we got yeah. to 20 and then. I'll take your height, uh, John, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, now, also, I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, did you take part in the very first Ferry of the Caribou from Canada to Australia? Yeah, I was on the second aeroplane. The first one was the CO, Wing Commander Fairburn and John McQueen. The second one was a lovely fellow named John Bevan and myself. And the third one was Noel Bellamy and Gary Martin. So we were the first three aircraft. That was in January 64. Canada to Australia, that's a a fair hike. And I'm under the impression that the Caribou is not a long-range plane. How did you fill up with fuel? There are not many stops. (laughs) Uh, they were trialling these uh, bladder tanks, big um, bladder tanks back in the fuselage, and they were moderate success. Ours was okay. Uh, Wing Commander Fairburns were okay, but on the first sector out of Toronto, Noel Bellamy's sprung a leak, and they had aviation fuel sloshing around the, the bottom of the aeroplane, and they descended very gingerly into a Canadian Air Force base in New Brunswick somewhere, and uh, I think they brought them some new ones from Toronto because we we waited in uh, in uh, Newfoundland for them, and they caught up with us, and then we we all headed across the Atlantic. So obviously theirs were were repaired, so we could do long sectors like um, Gander in Newfoundland to the Azores with the tanks. On the next ferry that I did, John McQueen and I were captains by this time, and we shared the the aircraft that we were on in the next ferry that we did, which was about ferry number four, I think. And uh, they had lost confidence in the bags, in the in the fuel tanks. So we did short sectors from Toronto to Goose Bay in Newfoundland, to Greenland, to Iceland, to Valley in Wales, an RAF base in Wales, to Nice, to Malta, to El Adam in Libya. So that was a very 
interesting long. Yeah, I can flight. imagine. So they they were flights across the top of Australia. When you had the bladder tanks, what was the route uh, that you would follow then? Did you come across the Pacific, or was it again across the top of the, the the globe? Later on, we did the Pacific, but the first ones they weren't too confident about the distances. The aircraft's ability to cover the distances involved in the Pacific. So the first ones were across the Atlantic. So that first one, as I mentioned, we went from Gander in the in the Newfoundland to the Azores, to Malta, and the sectors from there on weren't all that long. The Azores to, to Gibraltar, to Malta. I think we'd lost confidence in the bags. And from then on, the, the sectors were pretty short. Later on, uh, I did a third one. Gary Martin and I were on flying one of the aircraft and we did cross the Pacific on that one. And I think there was at least one other, maybe several ferries across the Pacific. I obviously gained confidence in the uh, the fuselage bags. And uh, Gary and I, the sector from California to Honolulu is 15, was 15 hours. Two pilots, no autopilot. In civil flying, that would be completely unacceptable. You wouldn't have been uh, we allowed. We lost an engine between on the next sector from Honolulu to Canton Island. We shut an engine down due to an oil loss from the propeller. And uh, the Caribou had a World War II radial engines for, uh, used in the DC-4, but with a modern propeller, reversing propeller system with its own oil supply. And they had a habit of gulping the oil out of the reservoir, the propeller reservoir, back into the engine. And midway between Honolulu and Canton, we had a low oil light came on for the right propeller. The procedure was to shut it down. So we shut it down and uh, we were at about 9,000 feet. Gary was flying that sector. He put the power up on the good engine and um, we started having an overheating problem. So I put out a pan call. The worst case is, is Mayday. The next level of urgency is pan. And um, I put out a pan call to Honolulu and a um, Coast Guard C-130 set off after us. And we trucked on. We found that at about 5,000 feet, the uh, overheating left engine ceased to overheat. So we could continue on at about 5,000 feet. The other two or three aircraft in our group, they waited for us in Canton. And we eventually arrived and we were in the circuit in Canton when the C-130 came overhead. And he said, I see you've made it, guys. See you later. And he turned around and yeah. headed back. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, look, it, let's jump to, because I think it's an important part of what I would like to talk about, 1964. You were part of the first pilot group uh, in RAA of Transport Flight Vietnam. How did that occur? For me personally, John McQueen and I, as I mentioned, were, yes, the, the Pacific flight I did was after I'd been in Vietnam. So John McQueen and I ferried an aircraft. That's the one where we went to short stops through Greenland, Iceland and so on. And we delivered that to Vung Tau. And those three aircraft in our group were the last three of their, their six, the first six that they were due. And then we had ticket back home to Australia and we had a couple of weeks holiday in Australia before coming back. So we were the last two pilots of that first group and we were late because we'd been involved in, in that ferry flight. It was an eye-opener again. All of us young guys from, from Australia suddenly exposed to the Vietnamese village. We lived in a village, Vung Tau. We lived in a fairly nice villa, the Villa Anna. We catered for ourselves. We cooked for ourselves. I remember at one stage, the Americans were not there in numbers in those days, but they were there in some numbers. We worked with the Air Force, but uh, Vung Tau was, was principally a, a US Army base. They had caribous there. They had um, Iroquois. And I remember once we obtained some eggs from them, a large egg box, quite a big egg box of eggs, which we kept in the kitchen. And we worked our way through these eggs and uh, no refrigeration. And after a while, we got wary because too many were rotten. So we'd break an egg into a cup or into a plate to find out if it was, if it was healthy or not. And then we'll cook it if it was. 
So things are fairly primitive. They certainly sound. I want to know about the caribou, uh, because there weren't many caribous there. Uh, was there one particular mm. caribou written off in which you were the co-pilot? That's correct, yeah. We, <clears throat> I think it was October or November. So John McQueen and I arrived in October. So it was one of the early flights that I was on. As I mentioned, we, I think I mentioned, we alternated. We'd be a captain today, co-pilot tomorrow, captain the next day. And this day, it was a Monday out of Da Nang and Brian Hammond was flying. And we had some a load of stuff for a place called A northwest of Danang in the in the jungle in the bush it was monsoon time we couldn't get through the weather so we were underneath right down underneath the weather on, above the trees really finding our way up into into Aro and uh, we went over some angry people Viet Cong presumably and they opened up on us and I'm, I can remember hearing machine gun fire above the noise of the engines I haven't seen Brian for years to ask him whether he remembers that but I certainly rem- remember it and I shrank to about the size of a walnut I think within this in the armor plated yeah, seat I can imagine and we got five bullet holes through the aeroplane and Brian pulled up straight up into the cloud we were right under the cloud and just above the trees and the, the fellow who wasn't flying his job was to, to navigate among other things so we all had a folded map on our lap we had a 5,000 foot mountain on one side and a 7,000 foot mountain on the other side. So I gave Brian headings to steer and he climbed at full power and about 70 knots up through this cloud. And we'd heard stories about caribou, army caribous, American caribous turning in cloud and seeing green trees go past. But we were very alert for green trees. And we eventually popped out of the cloud at about 7,000 feet and uh, we had these five bullet holes and we'd had enough. So we turned around and went back to Da Nang. And on the Tuesday, I flew and we did other things, according to my logbook. And on the Wednesday, obviously, they tasked us to go back to Aero and Brian was flying again. This time we went over the top of the cloud and let down in, in a, through a hole in Laos and came back in from the west. And we were shot at going in. And when we got there, we were using this new system that the American Air Force, as I said, we worked with the Air Force. They were developing a low-level extraction system and the load would be sitting on rollers attached to a small parachute, which was slung under the back of the aeroplane somewhere. And we'd fly along over an open area that wasn't long enough to land on with our wheels down and flap down, obviously. And um, and then at the appropriate moment, one of us pilots would activate the switch on the flight deck, which would release the little parachute and it would pull the load and it would fall on the ground. So low-level extraction. And we were the guinea pigs with the U.S. Air Force and uh, it wouldn't work. So we would come all this way. We tried on the Monday, got five bullet holes, went back, came in on the Tuesday through Laos, more shooting. And now we couldn't get the load to work, the load to extract. So Brian said, I'm going to land. So we landed. That was a very short strip they they were taking the top off two little hills and dumping the spoil in in the gully between to create a, an airstrip and uh, they had about half of it made so and the gully had been half filled that was a narrow link between the two hill little hilltops and um, it was wet uh, the ground was was covered in water we we're all new on the airplane brian was a bit slow getting reverse in and we found ourselves careering along heading towards the, the little causeway between the two hills covered in in water the water would catch up with us the the, the rain the, um, the surface water caught up with us and we we disappeared in a cloud of spray around it we got a bit skewed to the right and the right wheel dropped into a washout on the on this on the right hand side and it ripped off the propeller hit the ground and it full bore in reverse so it ripped around the gearbox out of the front of the engine and the engine revved up to some astronomical revs by this time we'd come to a stop and I remember getting out, closing both mixture levers. The caribou had a uh, throttle mixture and pitch hanging from the ceiling, a bit like a Catalina. So I closed the two mixture le- levers as I got out. Every All of those little bases, outposts, had a, an American Green Beret contingent, usually five or six Green Berets there. And one of them came out with a bottle of brandy and gave us each a mouthful of brandy. 
Then they took us in. They said, you're not going anywhere. So they took us into this little fortress area. All the huts were were semi-buried in the ground with only 18 inches of the of the upper of the wall visible and then a roof on the top so they took us down the steps into one of them and said right there's three bunks here fellas you can sleep here and there's a machine gun at this there was a slot at, at ground level and there was a machine gun on a tripod they said if we're hit by the vc from that direction you man this machine gun and there are plenty of hand grenades and rifles and bullets here under the beds and um, fairly wide-eyed about this but it wasn't long before an american two american air force rescue helicopters got in through the weather and and landed and picked us up but before they did an american f-101 voodoo photographic fighter aircraft came whistling up the valley photographed the airplane and disappeared in the clouds and one of these green beret fellas said oh yeah he's taken a photo of the aircraft and that'll be on westmoreland's desk in saigon in 30 minutes so we were picked up by the these two rescue helicopters came in huskies actually interesting helicopters and flown back to da nang and the aircraft was uh, a write-off. Our Air Force came and rescued the left engine, and I think they got instruments and radios and um, maybe the left undercarriage. Fuselage was cut up, tail was cut off, and they, they took it into the uh, little fortified area, and it became a movie house known as Hammond House, apparently. Oh, just out of the out of interest, what happened? To, he was okay. He didn't he didn't get chastised. He was fine. He was fine. Oh, that's no, cool. no, we had a, a wonderful CO, um, a squadron leader. Chris Sugden was a CO. The story among us lot was that he sent a signal down south saying, one aircraft written off, please send new one. So they sent us a new so one. Send a new echo. That's that's the way the Royal Australian F. Look, I want to talk about some of the specific tasks of the caribou. Now, I find it quite fascinating. One of them, you supplied cows, pigs yep. and ducks. Yes, uh, we had a lot to do with these remote outposts up in the in the hills. Aero is quite up north. It's not as far north as Kaysan, but it's well north. We spent more time dropping livestock to places in the middle part and, and, and western middle part of, of Vietnam. A more mountainous area, the locals were known as Montagnards, and they were a different type of people to the coastal people who were descend, more descendants of Chinese, apparently. As I said, all these outposts had a, had a uh, Green Beret team and Green Beret teams were made up of a leader and a, an explosive specialist and a radio specialist and so on. And uh, places where we couldn't land, uh, the Americans were trialling dropping cows, well not cows, they'd be steers from uh, with, with a parachute. So they had a few um, missteps. Every time we dropped one, we'd bank quickly to see where it went. And um, sometimes the crate would break open or it would roll down the slope. And we did hear back that, or the Air Force obviously were interested in, in how it went because they were trying to figure out ways to get a cow there without it dying. And they eventually started slinging the cow within a box, really, within a crate with heavy straps under its belly. And they found that worked. If they didn't support it, support its heavy body, when it landed, it would break its legs. Now, the other thing that Americans told us uh, that they had to get to the cow first otherwise the modern yards would cut the, the tendons behind their front knees to stop them running away and uh. that way they would drop down onto their front knees and, and then they, they'd be ready they had to be killed when they, were, when they yeah. needed meat but we also they had pigs uh, ducks they'd shove the pigs into a cone-shaped basket and tie a rope of some sort across its backside to hold it in and they'd have three or four of them on a parachute and out they'd go i remember we're taking off from saigon once and uh, i looked back during the takeoff roll and the loadmaster has a pig by the leg and we because we used to fly with it with the ramp up but the door open to allow some air flow yeah. through the aircraft yeah this pig had got out of its basket and was trying to get out over the back. So one of us closed the door. We could operate the doors from the front. We closed the 
the door and put it back in its basket. And They were all delivered via parachute. What was the success of delivery like? We, we didn't have access to that sort of information other than we had some feedback through the Air Force or the US Air Force that uh, as to the success or otherwise of their packaging. We, we knew that they initially just stood the cow in a box and dropped it out with a parachute and they were breaking their legs when they landed. So that's when they started supporting them under their belly with heavy straps secured from the top of the box. Beyond that, we didn't get much feedback. We kept doing it. Some places we would head in to drop and we'd have a Sky Raider uh, in front of us and another one behind us because there was a bit of ground fire around. They were there to suppress the people who were inclined yeah. to shoot at us. What was the source of these cows, pigs and ducks? Where did they come from? Was it a delivery from outside of a Vietnam or is it from Vietnam? No, no. I, I, I'd be pretty sure it was, was within Vietnam. Yeah. We did other interesting stuff we dropped flares we they were experimenting with flares uh, and we we were the we were the guinea pigs we started dropping flares at night over places usually in the delta area that were under attack so we'd take off at dusk and circle over saigon uh, with a load of flares and two load masters and uh, we'd be given a task head out to the 27250 radial for 73 nautical miles and you'll find there's a war, battle going on so we'd head out we'd be at about 3,000 feet we carried a, a vietnamese soldier who spoke some english and he he had a, a backpack radio. He'd communicate with the people on the ground who were uh, engaging in this battle and uh, he'd pass on to us. I remember one of them saying one day, you've still got your lights on, that's why they're shooting at you. So we turned our lights off. <laughs> they stopped shooting, stopped <laughs> they shooting, stopped us, shooting and, at you. us and went back to shooting at each other. But these flares were long in a long tube, probably four or five metres long, and um, we'd usually, usually do a racetrack pattern at 3,000 feet and drop them and they would light up the countryside. They floated down on a parachute and they lit, lit up the countryside like daytime. And we'd try to adjust our racetrack pattern so that we dropped the next one when the last one was about to burn out, ideally. And one night we were we were supporting the first of the American Air Force DC-3s. They, were, they had um, Gatling guns, these 6,000 rounds a minute guns set up pointing out to the left-hand side of the fuselage, one in the rear door and two positioned along the fuselage. And they were trialling them and they would fly in a left orbit and the pilot had some sort of sight on the, on his left window and they would um, fire at targets on the ground. So we were at 3,000 feet. He was probably at, well, we might have been at four and he was at three and um, we couldn't see each other even though the countryside was lit up like day. All we, we knew that every time he opened up, we could see a red fire hose from a point in the sky to the ground and about every seventh bullet was a tracer apparently and it was like a red fire hose and they went on and developed it later on they began converting several c-130s to a similar system they had a name for these things they were trialing it with a dc-3 and we were we were involved what about the delivery of munitions uh what sort of weight are we talking and and, and how effective and and how dangerous well, my first experience, the first day I went out on a sortie with the fellows when I arrived, uh, we went from Saigon, somewhere up northwest of Saigon. We had two big pallets of, of ammunition in the back. Uh, each one was a ton, 1,000 kilos. It was loaded by a, a big American forklift, and we tied it, our fellows tied it down, and off we went. Uh, I was just riding along as a supernumerary, and they arrived at the destination, which was a little outpost with a some sort of reasonable strip. They taxied over to the place where the people wanted the ammunition, uh, backed it up. They opened the ramp, pushed the first one out, and it just went over the back of the ramp and crashed on the ground. And then they moved forward a few metres and out went the second one, crashed on the ground. And they said, all done, see you later, and off we went. Mm. I couldn't believe my eyes. These were rocket heads, hand grenades, bullets, all sorts of things. A tonne of them just crashed onto the ground. And no no following explosion, obviously. No explosion, no. Yeah. You do tell the story, interesting story, about a low 
level extraction of a Jeep and what was involved and what could have happened. Well, this was a good example of how capable the caribou was compared with anything else at the time. And it was um, placed south of Da Nang. It was in into 62. We were getting the older guys, Don Pollock and Gary Martin and Chris Sugden and those early fellows had moved back to Australia. And John McQueen and I were the last, so we were the last to go. So while we were still there, we were breaking in some of the new fellows who were coming up. And um, we had a Jeep and a Jeep trailer to deliver to a little place south of Da Nang. And it was a short, a lovely short strip, but too short for caribou, we were told. And it was used by beavers and bird dogs, I think. It has a slight upslope. The lower end, the approach end, was uh, a creek. And then the, the top end, it went, it fell off into a paddy field. So we were lolexing. So the gear down, flap out, and we came around up the strip and operated the switch for the for the parachute. But it was late working, and the um, the jeep came out late and went kapowie into the paddy field at the far off the far end of the strip i thought what shall i do i left the wheels down and came back and i reckoned the strip was long enough to use so i touched down did a touch and go because i was interested in how wet it was we had no radio connection with the people there there was there were americans probably green berets there but there was no radio so i then came back around uh, and flew beside the strip very low looking at my wheel tracks and there were none so i reckon uh, i figured that the strip was hard enough so i came back and did a landing the caribou had this wonderful little angle of attack indicator on the combing in front of the left-hand seat, the principal pilot's eyes. And regardless of your weight, if you slowed the aircraft down on approach with full flap and kept that little pointer on the white square in the middle of the... It's only a, it was only a small instrument on the combing in front of your eyes. If you kept the needle on the square, you're at the optimum minimum speed regardless of weight. And so we always doing a maximum performance landing. We always use that little angle of attack indicator. And I came down, touched down, reversed and so on, and came to a stop looking into the paddy field. So we backed back, reversed, did a three-point turn, taxied back off into the, there was a small parking area. And while the fellas were unloading the, the Jeep trailer, I paced out this little strip and I, I'm six feet too tall. So I have reasonably long legs and I reckon it was 300 big paces, about 300 metres, about 1,000 feet. That was about the minimum a caribou could, could use. So when we were, had, had unloaded the trailer, we taxied back. And obviously, we, 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 we would prefer to land up the slope, take off down the slope, and there was clearly no wind. So I taxied up to the paddy field end, did a three-point turn, backed up right to the edge of the paddy field and took off and we got airborne happily. And we came back that afternoon with a replacement Jeep and I landed with the Jeep. Uh, there were some questions about where the fellas got the Jeep from. And there was certainly rumoured that uh, someone <laughs> at the officer's mess came out and found his Jeep gone, but I, I can't verify that. Uh, please don't. <laughs> In retrospect, I don't want you getting into trouble. There was a war on yeah, all the, sorts of exactly. things. Exactly. Obviously, I mean, the, the fact that you just landed a caribou uh, on what was a thousand metres when that's... Thousand, its, feet, that, thousand feet. Thousand feet, thousand sorry. Feet. Thousand feet. And that's its limit. The other stories I hear, and from what you've been saying... Uh, your skill as a pilot must have been, or is, was exemplary in the sense that you're flying uh, uh, three or four feet from the ground with your wheels down, the flaps down, uh, you're flying above uh, trees, you're flying in bad weather, you're flying with mountains on either side of you. The skill level must have been extraordinary. 
Well, it did improve. I, I, on that first time when Brian and I wrote the aeroplane off at Aero, we were both very new on the aeroplane. And I've always thought that if it was later on in our time there, at the moment the wheels touched the ground, Brian would have had reverse in. Whereas early on, we weren't as conscious of, of the need to get reverse in immediately. So we, we did improve with practice immensely. And uh, we'd flare the aircraft. And the difference between difference in attitude between descending with full flap on approaching the threshold and then the change of attitude as you rotate the aircraft to arrest your rate of descent was enormous with the Caribou. And we got pretty good at it. And the moment the wheels touched the ground, bang, into reverse, the throttle would be back at idle. And as I said, it was like a Catalina with the throttle and so on overhead. You'd push the throttle up or the throttles up and that would engage reverse and then pull them back further and that would accelerate the engines in reverse. So we became very good at it after a while, uh, just simply through practice. Mm. But there's no doubt that Air Force training is very good. Air Force training is very good. They emphasize the important things and uh, great when you have the taxpayer paying for your lessons. I've done a bit of instructing in, in small aeroplanes in recent years and uh, the quality of some of the training is very questionable. Yeah. Uh, just for someone like me, who's listening to what you're saying, who has nothing to do with the Air Force and isn't a pilot, uh, you keep on talking about different aspects of the caribou and you're saying putting the plane into reverse. For an idiot like me, can you explain what that means? It's, it's, you're, you're, tu you're turning the angle of the propeller blades so that instead of pulling the aircraft through the air, the propeller blades rotate on their pivot point and they push instead of pulling. So when we talk of reverse, we're reversing the, the thrust of the propellers. So instead of positive thrust, you're changing it to negative thrust. In okay. other words, they okay. slow you down. Uh, jet engines, jet aeroplanes do it slightly differently, obviously, but the main way they do is they, they buckets come into the, the, the jet blast. Instead of the jet blast going to the rear, it's, it's diverted towards the front. Not very efficient, but it, it does produce some reverse thrust, so to speak, in, so, in the jet. So, for example, then, when in 2022, when I'm in a jet flying from uh, Melbourne to Sydney or Sydney to Melbourne and it lands and I hear that sudden roar of the engine, is that when the engine is going into reverse? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah the, en the engine doesn't change. The engine still runs the same way. What they do is they divert the, the jet thrust the jet blast is going out the back. They turn it around and point it towards more towards the front. What was it like with the United States of America and supplying the caribou with parts, uh, working with them mutually? Uh, because there weren't a lot of caribou, Australian caribous in Vietnam in the early days. So therefore, I would imagine parts would have been a premium. How did all that work? I had nothing much to do with that, but we, our home base was Vong Tau, southeast of Saigon, and that was the home to quite a few American Army aircraft. The Army had the caribous, so I uh, suspect that when we needed bits and pieces, we got them from the US Army. We got our tasks from the Air Force. Two aircraft would go up to Saigon every morning, and we'd go into the Air Force dispatch office, and they'd give us jobs. But uh, the Army are the ones who operated the caribous, so they're the people we would yep. go to for bits. If you had to say to someone who doesn't know anything all about caribous and Vietnam, how would you summarise your best memory of the caribou whilst you were in Vietnam? What, what kinds of things would you tell that person? Let's say it's your grandson and he's asking you. What would you say, say to him? Uh, certainly what characterises the caribou was, was how wonderful it was to fly. And I mentioned earlier about the DC-3. We went from the DC-3 to the caribou, like a 1936 Chev to a, I don't know. An MGB, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so it was a wonderful aeroplane to fly. And for young pilots like us, 
with the freedom that it had and, and the amount of opportunity we had to use our own initiative, that was one of the most striking parts of our time in Vietnam. The caribou was, was um, the tool that we were using, but that example of mine of the um, where we couldn't get the lolex to work properly and we destroyed the jeep that we were taking to that place south yeah. of Da Nang, it was up to me. Do I risk a caribou by landing on this strip or do I go back and get another jeep? So we had that sort of freedom to make decisions and... Uh, the caribou was, was an integral part of that because it was such a good aeroplane and we became so confident, arguably overconfident, but we became so confident in it uh, after a while. I can understand. Uh, you left the uh, Royal Australian Air Force in 1969. What was your, uh, at that stage, what was your reason then? I mentioned I never had any intention of, of staying permanently in the Air Force. I had been flying C-130s and a job came up in Alaska, of all places, and I was hired to go to Alaska and fly a C-130. So that didn't work out all that well because it took a long time to get the green card. And when I arrived in Alaska, they were putting people off. But my motivation was to get into civil flying. Flying an aeroplane is your passion, was your passion, and yeah, I imagine yeah, still I, is. Yes, I still fly. I still keep a licence current. And yeah. I've built three aircraft over the years. Uh, I spent 22 years on the 747, which was the pinnacle of my flying career. As much as I loved the Caribou and the C-130, the 747 was a hard... Problem. Was that with Air New Zealand? 20 years with Air New Zealand, not all on the on the 74, but I went on to the 747 with Air New Zealand and I got a command on the 74 with Air New Zealand. And then after I left them, I spent 10 years doing contract flying around the world. 747, when you were the pilot of a 747, are you involved only in two stages, taking off and landing and the rest is autopilot, or are you flying 24... Seven. Twenty-four-seven. Now that's that's one of the great fallacies. Peter would acknowledge probably any pilot who thinks you just have to take off and then put the autopilot in and go to sleep is a recipe for disaster. Even with autopilots, and and one of the reasons that there's so much automation on on big jets is because it's all done with just two pilots now. Uh, I was from the era of two pilots and a flight engineer, but a great deal is achieved with this tool, this aircraft, with only such a small crew. In order to, to do it efficiently every day in all weather, you need all these aids and the autopilot and auto throttle are just two of the things. Modern navigation systems are important. As a captain of an aircraft, like a 74 with 400 people down the back, a crew to think about, I was awake all the time. Occasionally thinking. on domestic flights, the captain, may they may have been late taking off for some reason and when you're in the air the captain says I, I think we can make it up so he's obviously doing something to make up that time in the flight from x to y no that's another uh, another fallacy in the 747 i can really only talk with confidence about the 74 we cruised at 0.85 of the speed of sound and we always cruised at 0.85 of the speed of sound if he thinks he can make up time he might be able to cut some corners by talking to the ground controllers and saying could i have direct from from a to c instead of going from a to b to c so often they'll give you a direct to cut a corner to shorten the flight slightly if traffic allows uh, he might be hoping for a better tailwind but i really think it's largely to placate the passengers yeah as okay much as no, well thank you for that i <laughs> I'll bear that in mind on my next domestic flight. Tell me about the landing the 747 at Khartoum as a yeah. you're no longer yeah, in the Royal Australian Air Force. It's it's a whole new world. On that particular occasion, we came from from Jeddah with a load of 
400, 450 school teachers, nurses, doctors, because foreigners do all the work in Saudi Arabia. And I, we were based in Jeddah at the time. And uh, we approached Khartoum from Port Sudan. Uh, you descend, we came overhead of the airfield at 3,000 feet, and, and the aim was to track outbound because we were going to land the opposite direction. And most of the aides were not working. We improvised, the co-pilot and I, we, um, we tracked out on uh, the ILS, every airport that a 7-4 uses has an instrument landing system. Very rare for, an, for a big aeroplane with a lot of people to not land at an air, airport with an instrument landing system. So an ILS, which is what it is, an ILS, you get a, a beam which directs you down the centre line of the, of the airfield. So you approach from 10 miles back uh, and that uh, you keep that centred and that gets you lined up with the runway. And it has another beam which gives you a three-degree glide slope or thereabouts. And so you follow those two beams and descend through cloud, if you're in cloud, descend through cloud to a minimum 200 feet or even less, uh, break out and then go ahead and land. Part of it was working in Khartoum. So we tracked out on the reciprocal of the beam that provided the centerline alignment to 10 miles and did a procedure turn and came back and uh, the glide slope part didn't work and uh, there were a couple of other aids that weren't working. We had the centerline and we had a distance measuring equipment. So at each, each mile, you have to be at a certain height. So the co-pilot called out the, uh, what we should be at seven miles, we should be 2100, six miles, 1800. And I flew it. And at about 300 feet, we had our lights on, of course, illuminating the uh, threshold when we when we get there. And I realized that all the lights were out across the threshold and down either side of the, of the runway for quite some distance. Again, in the middle of the night at Khartoum, you've got to do what you've got to do. I figured it was a a reasonable bet to go ahead and land. So I closed the throttles, shoved the nose down because we'd been guided. I'd, my, I'd been guided by the, the lights that I could see, which were well forward of the beginning of the runway. And here was the beginning of the runway down here below us. So I pushed the nose down, power off, and touched down. Everything was safe. Came to a stop, taxied in, and it was just crowded parking area. It was a whole new world compared to what one experienced in Air New Zealand or Qantas, good airlines where we were led by the hand and did simulated rides before we went somewhere. In that world of uh, Air Atlanta, was the company that I was with, uh, they used to joke that we operated 747s like bush pilots, like bush planes, <laughs> and there was a lot yeah. of truth in that. Yeah. John, your career is fascinating. I've just got one last question, if I may. You had the privilege of flying a P-51 Mustang. In fact, you and a chap called Bill Pike flew two of them. What was that like? Yeah. That was one of the highlights of my flying career. I, I mentioned the 747, the Hercules and the, and the Caribou, but the P-51 was Dr. Sydney Doctor had two of them on his farm in Southern Riverina near Gerildery. And uh, we went there and got the, the first one. The second one was actually elsewhere. But Bill and I were there the first day. We, we used a tractor and pulled this, um, this battered-looking P-51 out of this open shed in a cow paddock. Tires were flat. We pumped the tires up. The cows had licked the rudder, which was covered with fabric on a P-51. And uh, it was all floppy. Uh, so we pumped the tyres up. We found some aviation fuel down at the farm and we brought that back and pumped it into the tanks, put water in the radiator and it had no batteries in it. So we got two 12-volt car batteries and we put them in the battery compartment and wired them up in series to give us 24 volts. And by this time, Tony Fisher, the owner, had arrived. So he said, right, our fellas, this is your checkout. He got in into the cockpit and um, first thing we noticed was there's a little priming pump and he pushes this priming pump in and out to prime it. And we had one in the in the in the windshield in the Air Force, I think, but the Air Force one didn't leak. This one leaked. It was dripping petrol down onto his feet. And then he hit the hit the starter, and um, this big propeller turned, started to fire, and birds' nests and dust came out of the exhaust stacks. And 
Tony got it to run, but he it, every time he closed the throttle to, to back to idle, it would begin to stall. So he'd push the throttle open to half power in order to get it to run. So this this blew Bill and I off, off the wing. We were standing one on either side. This is our checkout. It blew us off the wing. And um, so he taxied over a bit and then warm, let the aeroplane warm up. And off he went down the paddock. And he got the tail up, probably doing about 70 knots. And it started to backfire and blow smoke. So he closed the throttle. I remember Bill and I looking at each other with a bit of a wry smile, thinking, well, we might survive another day because this thing's not going to fly. But no, Tony taxied back and he idled it for a bit longer. And off he went again. And he flew around and came back and landed and jumped out and said, righto, who's next? Wow. <clears throat> Bill was next because it was Bill's party. He'd he'd met this guy and he set it up. So off he went. Yeah, so when my turn came, I, I hopped in. And I, one of the first things you do as a pilot is taxi an aeroplane around to get a feel of the, in this case, the tail wheel and the tail wheel steering. And it turned out to be exactly the same as, as what I remembered from the windshield. You push the stick forward and that unlocks the tail wheel and it allows you to do a sharp turn either way. And then when you run the aircraft straight for a metre or so with the stick back, the, the tail wheel lock goes back into place and then you can steer to some extent with the rudders. So I gingerly opened the throttle and off I went and um, I had the stick back because I had many stories about World War II pilots opening the throttle too quickly and taking off 90 degrees to the direction they'd started. And I got airborne before I even had full power on, pulled the undercarriage up, pulled the flaps up and I cruised around enjoying the scenery. But when I turned downwind, I realised that I had to get this aeroplane on the ground in one piece if I wanted to live another day. And this is always uppermost in your mind it's probably what we all remember from our first solo is that you're up in the air in order for your life to continue you've got to get it down on the ground in one piece yeah. without killing yourself i came over the fence and uh, i couldn't see anything much out the front because the windscreen was covered with oil but i could look out the side and i knew that when the fence and a, and a plow went past i had clear paddock in front of me and i just felt for the ground and uh, eventually it got it on the ground so we got both of them going eventually and did some formation takeoffs and a few barrel rolls yeah a good memory a good memory a too good memory. yeah a good memory john look i want to thank you for an illustrious career and the time to have a chat about that career particularly with the caribous in vietnam you uh, clearly would be someone i'd be prepared to go up in the plane with you sound like a very competent pilot so thank you for your time and congratulations Congratulations on your wonderful career. Thank you, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.